All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations 1. Last week, we uh, spent our time walking through the book sermon, giving you a perspective on Lamentations. Uh, indeed, uh, as I mentioned last week, it, it is a little bit difficult in one sense uh, for us, for, for me to continue uh, for a few more weeks in, in this sorrow. Uh, it's been sorrow for a long time now in, in Jeremiah and then into Lamentations. However, uh, this, this series affords a wonderful opportunity to take each of these Lamentations and to direct our attention toward the hope that undergirds them and toward the opportunities that we have to learn from the mistakes, as it were, of the nation of Israel. You know, sorrow has been a major theme surrounding the message of Jeremiah, hasn't it? Sorrow over the sin, Jeremiah's sorrow over the sin of God's people, sorrow over the fate of the city of God, sorrow over the destruction of the temple, tremendous depths of sorrow. Sorrow is never what we want to feel, never what we want to experience, and yet sorrow is often the crucible in which God is able to do His most effective work. Sorrow is often an opportunity to be drawn closer to our Lord, to be made to see what perhaps we had failed to see previously, and thus find our way through the darkness into the light of the Lord. The impact of light is most understood within the context of darkness, is it not? We have these lights on in the morning and we have these lights on in the evening. Uh, they make a whole lot more of a difference in the evening than they do in the morning. The impact of color is most obvious compared to black and white. And the impact of joy is most realized through the backdrop of sorrow. It is in this way that the psalmist tells us in Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for, the for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. It is in this same vein that the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Sorrow has its function in the broader scope of life's journey. Sorrow makes us to consider our frailty and our needs. Sorrow roots us in a longing for something more and something better. Sorrow leads us to God. Sorrow points us toward home. We spoke last week about the reality of sorrow in the book of Lamentations, and we observed from a broader perspective how it is that sorrow can be used by God to direct our hearts towards something deeper. Thus, we begin this journey together this week, we spoke last time about that larger picture of the book, organized in what we call the chiastic structure. And we're going to keep hearkening back to this idea to keep us rooted in the perspective of the book. So recall, Jerusalem is gone, her walls are torn down and burned, the temple is destroyed, and we considered this at the end of Jeremiah, that there's probably somewhere around only 5,000 Jews remaining, uh, perhaps even on the whole earth at this point, effectively, after the destruction of the nation of Judah. 
And as we read the first of these five lamentations, they're five different poems. We talked about the structure of them last week. And we talked about this chiastic structure of the whole of the lamentations that is driving us toward the center. It's compelling us onto the center of the book. And it does that very, very purposefully because the center of the book is mercy. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. The center of the book is hope. And we remember this. So today we read this first of five poems. And again, it's not going to be pleasant walking through it. And even as we step into the application, the application is going to be pointed. But it's going to help us lay a foundation for then bringing us to this point of hope. And so in verses 1 and 2, we read this. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princes among provinces, how is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. So we begin with a general call of lamentation for the city of Jerusalem. The city is now solitary. That was once full of people. The streets are empty that were once bustling. The city lives on, Jeremiah describes it, as a widow bereaved of all that once supported and blessed her. A city which was once great, a city of influence and of honor, is now nothing more than a remnant, a tributary to a nation greater than herself. Now in verse 2, we begin to see why it is that this sorrow exists and how this sorrow is tempered by a measure of realization regarding why. We read of the weeping of the city. Then in verse 2, it says, Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Those who Jerusalem trusted, abandoned, and betrayed her. They had no love for her. They had no loyalty to her. But she found out too late. She realized the bankruptcy of her companions too late. And certainly not for lack of warning, but only for lack of humility and submission to see what God was telling her was true from the beginning. Not for lack of, of capacity to see that this was going to happen, but for lack of a heart of repentance to believe it when God said it. Verses 3 and 4. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Verse 3 begins with a specific account of Judah's misery a dig into the facts of her demise. And it's an interesting statement because in verse 3 it says that she has gone into captivity because of affliction and great servitude. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that was the captivity. The captivity is the great affliction and servitude. So what's this idea? It's an interesting statement because we might rather regard the affliction and the servitude as the effect of her captivity, whereas as it's reflected in the King James, it says that the servitude and the affliction were the cause of her captivity. 
And this is, an, in fact, a fine translation. There's not a translational problem here. And its realities are backed up by what we've already studied in, in the book of Jeremiah. If you recall, way back in Jeremiah 34, that was a long time ago now, <laughs> 18 chapters ago, way back in Jeremiah 34, do you recall when King Zedekiah, in an act of desperation, made a covenant with the people that they were going to be set, that they were going to set at liberty their bond servants? in accordance with the law, that every Hebrew who was a bondservant would be released to his or her inheritance as God had commanded to be done every sabbatical year, every seventh year, and that had never been done. So the people, the Bible says, let them go. And then immediately after letting them go, they repented of the good. They re-enslaved these bondmen and these bondwomen, thus scorning the Lord's command. And on that day, recall, God had a message for Zedekiah and for the people of Israel of Judah. He said this, beginning in verse 13 of Jeremiah 34. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondmen, saying, At the end of seven years, let ye, every, let ye go every man his brother in Hebrew, which hath been sold unto thee, and which hath served thee six years. Thou shalt let him go free from thee, but your fathers hearkened not unto me, neither inclined their ear, and ye were now turned and had done right in my sight in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor. And ye had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But ye turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid whom ye had set at liberty at their pleasure to return and brought them into subjection to be unto you for servants and for handmaids. Therefore thus saith the Lord, ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. There's our three, right? That we saw all throughout Jeremiah. And I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me. When they cut uh, the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof. And he continues, from there I will not continue reading. But God says here that because of their affliction, because they afflicted, because of the servitude which they levied upon their brethren, God told them that they would lose access to the land itself, that they would be slain, that they would go into captivity, that they would uh, seek to this pestilence. He says, I free you to the pestilence. I free you to the sword. I free you to the famine. And indeed, that is what we see here. It, this is what the lamentation acknowledges here, that the nation is not guiltless in their captivity, but that they caused affliction. They caused servitude, and it is causing God to requite them of that evil that this hard heart had led them to reap the very affliction and servitude that they had sown into their own land. And now she dwells among the heathen and she finds no rest, just as God promised in Jeremiah 34. Judah is described thus as being in bitterness because the feast days come and go without any attendance, because her gates have no leaders sitting within them. We see this picture of desolation such as the sorrowful state of the nation. Verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. 
and from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. As Jeremiah describes the, the dominance of Judah's enemies over her, he again roots the reality of their choices. And he, he roots their judgment in those choices. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions, he writes. From this we draw back to the sorrow of such a state. Jerusalem's children are gone into captivity. The beauty has departed from the nation. Her princes are described like hearts that would be deer, finding no pasture, no strength before their pursuers. That word heart is not, of course, as I just mentioned, the one beating in our chest, right? It's not H-E-A-R-T, but H-A-R-T. The word describes a deer, and specifically a male red deer, would have been something very familiar to those in England around the time that the King James was written. And so uh, that is unto which they liken here the princes. The idea is that the princes have no pasture. They have no place to go. They are without a nation to lead. They're weak, they're powerless, they're easy prey for those that would hunt them down. If a deer is in an open field and has nowhere to run and nowhere to hide and nowhere to go, then they're easy prey. That's the picture. Verses 7 and 8. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her, the adversary saw her and did mock her, they did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, Therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backwards. Verse 7 describes the events of Jerusalem's overthrow in a manner that expresses what we might call an open wound. These events are still tender in the minds of the captivity. And remember, that's what we see in that chiastic structure, that the first lamentation is the lamentation of the people of Jerusalem as they lament the loss of their city. They think back to what Jerusalem once was and then to the days of her affliction and the misery that came upon them. We will consider more so um, the next time we're in Lamentations, the depth of the misery of those years of the siege. We've already alluded to them. We alluded to them last week. There was no one to help. She was mocked. She was scorned. And that because of the grievous nature of her sin. It was her sin that led to her removal. It was her sin that caused the heavens to be as a stone before her. It was her sin that caused her to become contemptible in the region. She had, exposed, she had been exposed for what she was, a morally bankrupt society. We see that picture here, that all that had honored her despised her for they had seen her nakedness. Whatever honor, whatever dignity she once had, she has been totally exposed and there's no dignity left. There's no honor left. Verses 9 and 10. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully. She had no comforter, O Lord. Behold my affliction. For the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things. For she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary. 
whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. These verses continue to describe Jerusalem's shame. We were introduced to this in the last verse, the idea that she had her nakedness has been revealed so that she turned backwards and sighed. The idea is that she is in utter shame, utter dismay, utter disgrace. And he uses the picture of a woman whose uncleanness is known by her soiled garments. And in all of this, she didn't remember. She never stopped to consider. She didn't listen to what would be the end of her sinfulness. She never stopped to consider that her shame is of her own making. She never stopped to repent and to say, I need to change something so that I can be, be restored to a measure of dignity. And in the end, she stubbornly insisted that she would get through this. And in the end, there is no one left to comfort her. It's a picture of utter self-destruction. A person who's living in sin, headed down the path of utter destruction, but who is so proud, so focused upon his own way, his own thoughts, that he heeds no warnings. The warnings are coming. Friends, family, spiritual advisors, they're saying if you continue down this path, there will be danger, but they don't get it. In their pride, they, they, are, they are myopic. They are, they are laser-focused on it almost seems destruction, right? You've seen it before. They can't see the danger into which they go. They're convinced that they're fine. Thus was this nation. And so the nation lived to see the day when the temple of the Lord was desecrated by those who were unclean, by those who were never allowed to even enter into the congregation. And now they have desecrated the temple. They lived to see the day when their sin was found out. Their shame was laid bare to the world. Verses 11 through 13. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From above he hath sent fire into my bones and prevailed against them. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. Jerusalem's lament describes the sighing of the people, how they have been debased before the nations. She pleads for God to see and to consider her vile state. We see in this not just sorrow, but something far more important than sorrow. We see remorse. We see, finally, the glimmer of realization as to the source of their shamed condition. She says there is no sorrow like her sorrow. She asks the nations, is it nothing to you to see Jerusalem this way? She describes as, this, as if there is no affliction like that which the Lord had allowed on this, this city. And these words are not intended to be some sort of haughty comparison to another. It's not intended to say, other nations, we were so beautiful and you were... Don't, don't you miss us? It's not like that. What we see here is grief. Grief into which the nation had been sent. 
She describes the Lord's judgment as fire into her bones, as a net spread for her feet, which caused her to faint and become desolate. Verses 14 and 15. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. He hath made my strength to fall. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands. From whom am I able to rise up? I, from whom, excuse me, I am able to rise up. The Lord hath trodden under the foot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. Verse 14 gives the metaphor of a farmer. He says here, The yoke of my transgression is bound by his hand. A farmer who yokes his oxen and then he holds those reins firmly. God has placed them under the yoke of this bondage, under the yoke of the consequences of their sin. And Jerusalem says, and he's not letting go. He's holding fast. He is directing me. I have no freedom. I am sent into this destruction and there's nothing I can do about it. They had crossed that point of no return and now they are in this, this place of destruction. Again, the spirit of these words is not accusatory, but revelatory. Jerusalem is not angry. She is sorrowful. She's not blaming the Lord. She's acknowledging the Lord's righteous judgment here. Again, a picture in verse 15 of Jerusalem. This time not being yoked to the consequences of her sin, but being trodden as grapes in the winepress. The idea of that large vat of grapes, which whether by a stone or whether by feet, is being trodden and they are being crushed and they are being pressed so that the wine, the, 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 the grape juice is then pouring out and pouring in uh, th- through siphons and filters into bottles, being crushed under the weight of her judgment. Verses 16 and 17. For these things I weep. Mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversary should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. We've seen that picture already. Notice the very important reason for her sorrow as acknowledged here. She says, For these things I weep because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. Her companions and her lovers had abandoned her. And she is under the weight of the judgment of the only one who has ever faithfully loved her. So it is, we see the picture of Zion reaching forth her hands for comfort, but no one is there because everyone that she had erected in her life to comfort her, every fallback plan, every safety net had abandoned her entirely. And the only one that she had completely disregarded, the Lord, is the only one now that could comfort her and he is far from her by her own doing. And so at this point, it is too late for such comfort. Now was the time for judgment for her enemies to surround her. And yet this sorrow is no true complaint, not a cry of injustice as we've read. It's a cry of Sorrow. It's a cry of acknowledgement. We see this in verses 18 and 19. The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you all people, and behold my sorrow, my virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I call for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and mine elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. 
Much different than a complaint, Jerusalem stands here as a testimony to God's righteousness and her own rebellion. She called the people to hear, to learn from her mistake, to see her sorrow, to learn from her rebellion, to understand that all those earthly nations, all those philosophies, all those ideologies that made so many promises to her when she was wealthy and when she was peaceful and when she was beautiful have now abandoned her. And she is cast off and she is nothing. And they, she has nothing to offer them and they never had anything to offer her. Everyone was dead or disinterested in helping her. This metaphor is one of such careful connection to the realities of so many in sin. I cannot help but strike close to home. The picture of a young girl who is used and abused and mocked and at the end, at the last, dumped for another. And then only does she realize in her foolishness to her shame that she sought for satisfaction among those who seek only to use her unto their own ends. And that she, to her shame and to her regret, rejected the careful and deliberate concern of those who truly cared for her, the umbrella of protection under which she had once operated. That's the picture here. That is, that is Jerusalem here. That's what, that's what this lamentation is presenting. And so he declares at the last, remember there's 22 verses, chapters 1, 2, 3, or 1, 2, 5, and 6, uh, 1, 2, 4, and 5. So in verses 20 to 22, the Bible says this, Behold, O Lord, I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. Mine heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled abroad. The sword bereaveth. At home there is as death. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee. And do unto them as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. So ends the first lamentation. At the last, Jerusalem's grief calls her to cry out unto the Lord, describing herself as being in distress, that her bowels are troubled, the idea there being the seat of her emotions. Her heart is turned within her. And again, notice the reason. She says, for I have grievously rebelled. The description is of that sick feeling one gets when one goes, comes face to face with a terrible action they've committed or a terrible consequence that they've brought upon themselves. Just feel sick to your stomach. Say, how could I have done that? How could I have made that decision? What was I thinking at the time? How could I have said that? How could I have hurt that person in that way? That's the idea here. The, her bowels are distressed. Her heart is turned within her. She is under tremendous emotional strain and grief over sorrow for her sin and acknowledgement of her rebellion. She's in repentance here. But at the last, she also seeks justice, asking the Lord to remember those wicked that she sought to, that she desired to use as her comfort and who abandoned her and who rejoiced in her sorrow those under whose umbrella she sought to rest and who, who abused her and mocked her and scorned her and left her and abandoned her. She says, remember them too, asking God to do unto them as he, had done, he has done unto her and speaking with confidence that this will take place. And as we know from Jeremiah, God most certainly will do that. 
as we apply this evening, remember this first chapter reflects this sorrow of Jerusalem, painted in the metaphor of a woman who has been abused. That's the picture. 22 verses written in this alphabetic acrostic, describing the depth of the pain into which this sin had driven this woman as she had cast off all of her friends, as she had cast off all of, uh, all, all of, her, all of the righteous, as she had sought unto those who were unrighteous for her friends, as she had sought unto that which is unrighteous for her companions, as she sought to live under the umbrella of her own rebellion, myopically focused, not listening to anyone who would divert her way, and she's now living out the consequences. And it is in this reflection, it is upon this reflection that we turn our eyes in our application. Two points of application this evening. Point number one, sin is deceitful, abusive, and at the last leaves you desolate and alone. This chapter conjures up a very graphic image. For many among us, by God's grace, these metaphoric circumstances have no relationship to experiences that you understand. Praise God for that. For some, you get this in its fullness. You're quite familiar with the measures unto which sin takes you. In reading this chapter, my mind turns to many that I meet at the jail, particularly the young women. Women who are led into a string of choices against the loving cries of their families encouraged by so-called friends and lovers who claimed to have her best interest in mind, who fed the emotional part of her that sought for some connection, some attachment. So they give themselves cheaply and they live for that moment in time, convinced that the attention and the love which they crave is best fulfilled in the empty promises of those who have guided them into this lifestyle. Only at the last once all of the beauty and usefulness has been drained from her, she's cast aside to make room for someone else, leaving her empty and broken, a shell of her former self. Of men that I meet in the jail who seek leadership and direction which they never knew at home. And so they seek after this kind of contentment in the approval and satisfaction of those who see them as nothing more of a tool to be used and to be worn down and then to be cast away, whose closest friends hold true only in personal advantage and who at the last will gladly see these young men abused if only they might gain the better hand. The man who says, yeah, my buddy said he was going to bail me out, but I've not heard from him since. They give their strength and their love and their loyalty to the pleasures of sin for a season And then they receive the ransom of their exchange while crumbling on the inside. And at the last they are broken and they are lost and they are alone, having cast off anyone who truly loved them for the empty promises of those who did not. And that is the deceit of sin. Say, I would never fall for that. Let him who thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Because sin is not just deceitful, it's also alluring. This is the picture in Lamentations 1. This is the picture that it seeks to paint. A picture of a sin-abused nation who were convinced 
in their pride and in their rebellion of their own capacity to overcome what has been the same story, the same warning since the beginning. And this city said, sure, I know that. Sure, God said that, but I'm going to beat the odds. Sure, that may be your circumstance, but, but that's not going to happen to me. Sure, I get it. That's what, that's what the Bible says is going to happen. That's what people have warned me is going to happen. Someone else has testified of that, but that's just them. That's not me. And it's a lie. And we know it because we've seen it. And we know it because wisdom tells us. And yet we are, when we are confronted with the deceits and the allures of sin, we find in them temptation. Indeed, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, James tells us. But James warns us in James 1.15, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Sin has no other outcome than death. You will never beat the odds on that one. You will never cheat the system on that one. There is no way to do it. It cannot happen. The wages of sin is death. It was, and indeed it is, never God's intent to scare us into obedience. God is not a manipulator of our emotions as some angry schoolmaster who seeks to guide the emotions of his students through a carefully constructed horror story of evils in order to get him, manipulate them into doing, aligning with him. That's, that's not our God. God is love. And sin is death. And this idea not just meaning physical death, not even just meaning eternal death, but spiritual separation from the life and blessing of fellowship with the Creator God. There is no manipulation in warning an ignorant soul against a real and present danger. There is no subversion in the love that directs a person, that calls a person out of that which will invariably destroy them. It is not that sin may or may not bring forth this death. It is not that sin may or may not bring forth this separation. It is not that when you sin, you're, you're flirting with separation. Sin is the seed by which separation grows. And this is to the believer as much as the unbeliever. Now, to the unbeliever, that separation ends up in the lake of fire. To the believer, that, that's not the case. When you're safe, kept in grace... You're safe, kept in grace. But the believer can also suffer a separation of fellowship. A believer can also be led down into paths of darkness. As apple trees bring forth apples and orange trees bring forth oranges, sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And it is unto this end that Paul reasons with the readers in Rome. And he says this in Romans 6, 20 to 23. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness, speaking of when they were unbelievers. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the same warning as James gave. 
the same reality. We've all seen the ugly and merciless wages of sin. You've seen it in the eyes of those who are living in it. You've seen it in the emptiness that is in their souls. You've seen it in their desperate grasp for something to fill the void. We've seen it to one degree or another, the tremendous toll that sin takes upon the souls of them who give themselves to it. What fruit is there in those things? What fruit is there in those things of which we are now ashamed? There's no profit. The only fruit is death. Only the shame of being discovered and exposed and at the last left broken, discarded. That's what sin does. But these verses carry a very different perspective than those in James, don't they? James is a warning. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. He goes on, do not err, my beloved brethren. Romans is an exhortation. A call into a different reality. These verses aren't presented in the idea of a warning, per se. They're, they're presented as an exhortation to those who have found the solution. They're presented as an exhortation to those who have found life in Christ. To live in it. To thrive in it. To rest in it. To be empowered by it. To cast off the sin that easily besets us. That they would not yield their members as servants to sin any longer, but as servants to righteousness. And in doing so, to experience an entirely different result. Sure, the wages of sin is death, Paul says here, but, but the gift of God is eternal life. A life that can be evident, that can flow through us. That if we would confess our, our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore us unto that fellowship, to walk in that life. That any man or woman walking down the path of sin's destruction and sin's influence can, and in fact, indeed, in every way, find mercy through Christ. Find freedom from that sin. Whether that be the unbeliever fleeing to the cross of Christ, receiving for the first time so great salvation and the chains of their sin being broken, or be it that believer who is wallowing in the mire of some deception or some sin and coming out of that and living in the newness of life that has been purchased for him, into which he's already received. So we see that sin is deceitful and sin is abusive, and at the last, it leaves you desolate and alone. But then we come to the second most blessed point. The only source of healing is found in repentance. Contrasted with the separation of sin is the eternal life that is found through Jesus Christ our Lord. That at the moment that a person recognizing the, 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 the depravity of their own hearts, recognizing the, the destruction of their own sinful choices, cries out to God and says, God, I can't change me. I can't fix me. I can't heal me, but you can heal me. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
That believer who says, God, I have walked down that path of sin. I have allowed myself. I've quenched the Spirit of God. I've grieved the Spirit of God. I've entered into this path of darkness, but you can bring me back to the light. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, he of whom Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 says, For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. I spoke this morning in 1 Timothy 5 of Ezekiel 16. And I told you that I think Ezekiel 16 is probably one of the most beautiful chapters of Scripture in the entire Bible. And I described the situation there in Ezekiel 16 of, a, of God representing himself as a man finding an abused and neglected woman. And she is wallowing in the muck and the mire and the mud of her abuses and of her blood. And she is, she is, she is mistreated and, and abused. And he picks her up and he cleans her up and he heals her wounds and he clothes her in the finest clothing, and he teaches her, and he blesses her, and he, he marries her. But then she became proud. She was lifted up by her own beauty. She became selfish. She became self-absorbed. And so she was unfaithful to him. And she took the jewels that he gave her and made idols with them. She took the clothes that he gave her and dedicated them to others, as we described this morning. And so, as the scriptures describe it, and of course, remember, her older sister was said to be Samaria, her younger sister was said to be Sodom, and she went from lover to lover to lover, giving of herself to them, and at the end, at the last, she is again used and abused and desecrated and shamed, and she ends up spoiled and tattered and beaten and bruised and shameful and miserable, and this is the picture, God says, of where they are. Remember, Ezekiel's writing this, this is at the time when these things have come upon the nation. Now, I told you this morning that this passage was beautiful and nothing I've said so far is beautiful. And this morning, I never actually had a chance to tell you why the passage is so beautiful. That wasn't the object of this morning's message, but it is the object of this evening's message. So now I get to tell you. The beauty of this horrible scenario comes in the final verses of that chapter on Judah's fornication and her harlotry and the shame and the contempt of, and the sorrow of her sin. And in Ezekiel 16, it's a long chapter, but in verses 60 through 63, we read this. God speaking to this woman who has betrayed him, who has wandered away, who is now suffering the consequences, mired in the muck and the mud. He says, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee. In the days of thy youth, I will remember the fact that I saw you, I found you, I cleaned you up, and I married you. I'm, I, don't, I did not forget that. I did not forget that I married you, that I made a covenant with you in the days of your youth, before you left me, before you went after all of your lovers, before you took everything that I had given you and you dragged it through the mud and you disgraced yourself and you shamed yourself. Before any of that, I'm going to remember that I loved you, that I covenanted myself to you. And I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. 
then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, that's Samaria and Sodom, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. And I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord. God's message in the end is one of patient hope. He says, you have gone through the suffering and the judgment that comes with that suffering, but I didn't forget you. I remembered you. Certainly they would receive the consequences of their sinful actions, but on the day of their repentance, if only they would repent, their loving God was ready to forgive. And he looked forward to the day when he would secure that forgiveness through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, sounding the death knell of sin's power and of sin's penalty. And so we are called to run this race with endurance. So we are called, as we considered in Tuesday night, to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, not only for the reward of the life that is to come, but also for the reward of the life that is now. Deliverance from the devastating consequences of sin, of sorrow upon sorrow at the hand of sin's tremendous abuses. I don't know where you find yourself this evening, but as we consider Lamentations chapter 1, and I know, again, this isn't fun stuff, but do you see the beauty in this chapter? a nation that is crying out saying, Lord, you are righteous. Lord, you are right. A nation which is seeking to that comforter who finally understands the comforter to relieve her soul. Who acknowledges where she finds herself in order that through repentance she can find healing. And this is the blessing. This is the joy is that every time you sin, there's a way back home. For every bit of separation that your stubborn, deceitful heart, because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? And every deceit that my stubborn and deceitful heart leads me into, for every single one of those, there's a path back home. There's forgiveness with the Lord. Are there consequences? There are. But there's a way home. And so we are called to do that which our memory verse for this month encourages us to do. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't know if you've, I know you've quoted it. I don't know if you've actually prayed that in a while. If you've prayed that since we've been doing this, that's not an easy prayer to pray in genuineness. Because what you're asking God to do is to open up those closets in your heart, to, to, to look in the corners, to swipe his hand along that ceiling fan, where you just hope people don't see all the dust up there. And you're asking God to take inventory of you. 
And God's faithful and he'll do it. And there's blessing. There's blessing on the other side of that, but it's not enjoyable. It's not pleasant. But you know what that process does, what this process of repentance does? It guards me from the consequences that we've read about this evening. It is the constant self-correcting process of the Christian life that keeps me from walking down that dark path and staying there. Found through humility and repentance. How are you doing this evening? Do you regard the danger of sin for what it is? Or have you begun to get to the point where I haven't really seen the consequences of this sin. It seems like God doesn't really care, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You cannot beat that system. There's no way around it. So we search our hearts. We ask the Lord to search our hearts. We humble ourselves before him. We live in a spirit of repentance. And what we find on the other side of that is fullness of joy. What we find on the other side of that is the fruit of the Spirit. What we find on the other side of that is the gift of God, which is eternal life. A life everlasting. Let's live in it this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.